Sometimes the fun begins when the paved road ends. Chevy Silverado 2500 HD is made to work hard and play hard on the road or off. Go to ChevyDriveChicago.com for details and experience life in HD. Music legend Herb Albert, who is 88 years old and going strong, is in town this weekend playing at the Vic Theater this Saturday and Sunday. Albert, who rose to fame with his Tijuana Brass Band and who helped the careers of many via his co-founded A&M Records, is also a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. A legendary trumpet player, Herb's extraordinary musicianship has earned him five number one hits, nine Grammy Awards, 15 gold albums, four platinum albums, and has sold over 72 million records. Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass propelled his sound into the pop music limelight, at one point outselling the Beatles, Two to one. In 1966, they achieved this unmatched feat of simultaneously having four albums in the top 10 and five in the top 20. Now, Herb is still going strong at 87, celebrating over 60 years in the recording industry. Along with partner Jerry Moss, he was also the co founder of AM Records, at one time the world's most successful independent label. And to talk about that journey, Herb Alpert joins us tonight. Hello again, Herb. Hey, Matt, thank you for that introduction. Well, Hey, it's been a great life. I have no complaints. I'm a lucky guy. You know, I, I'm, I'm 75, 80% on the right side of my head, <laughs> my right brain, you know, and I wake up uh, yeah. sculpting, painting, and playing the trumpet. So That's awesome. That's awesome. It's a good deal. It is a good deal. Well, I want to start with your music. You know, you came from a musical family, and you started taking trumpet lessons when you were like eight years old, so this started pretty early on. Well, I was lucky. You know, in my grammar school in Los Angeles, there was a music appreciation class. And when I was eight years old, I was part of that class, and they had a, a, a table filled with various instruments, and I happened to pick up the trumpet. So it changed my life. Uh, you know, I tried to make a sound out of it. I couldn't. I thought you'd just blow hot air into the <laughs> horn, and that didn't work. But, you know, once I started going with it, taking lessons, and uh, the, the horn was speaking for me because I was super shy. And uh, the, the horn was making all the noise, so uh, it was it was good. And I'd, I'd love to see kids uh, have that experience, whether it's you know playing the trumpet or just getting exposed to the arts at an early age, because it's a uh, it's a it's a great discipline. And it folds right over into the academics. But I have to imagine too, your parents were such an inspiration too, and I think that's a big important part uh, that a parent uh, plays in all of this too, is because they were both musicians. Well, you know, my dad was from Russia, and he brought a mandolin with him. He came over to this country when he was uh, 16 years old, alone, not speaking the, the language. Landed in uh, Ellis Island, and uh, little by little, you know, worked his way to uh, Los Angeles. Um, he played the mandolin by ear, and he, you know, had a really nice feel. He always, I, I remember him, you know, closing his eyes, and his nostrils would flare up, and he'd play a, you know, some Russian songs, <laughs> and it was always beautiful to see. My mom played violin, but she didn't really stick to it. My brother was a professional drummer, um, and he was, uh, you know, an excellent musician. We played together, you know, a few times. My sister played piano, but not professionally. Now, I know you also toyed with acting for a little bit, but you decided eventually that music was your calling. I know in the late 50s, you turned to songwriting and some big hits, uh, you know, Wonderful World by Sam Cooke, Ellie Oop by the Hollywood Argyles, Baby Talk by Jan and Dean. I mean, you were kind of on your way uh, pretty quickly. Well, you know, it was uh, an interesting thing that happened after the Army. Well, you know, during the Army... I was sent to band school in Fort Knox, Kentucky, because I told them, the only thing I know how to do is play the trumpet, and I lied a little bit. I said, I played with uh, Count Basie and Harry James, and I, I laid it on, and so I, I had the M.O. of a trumpet player, period. That was my number. 
So I was a, like somewhat of a hotshot trumpet player in Los Angeles because I was always the first chair in high school and grammar school and uh, junior high and little symphony orchestras. And when I arrived at uh, band school in Fort Knox, Kentucky, there were like 12 trumpet players there that were better than me. Man, they played higher, faster, louder. They could read better. They had a, you know, a better command of the instrument. And I, I realized that if I was ever going to be a professional musician, I really had to come up with my own voice. And that's what I was looking for. Because for a while there, you know, I, I, I could play a little bit like Louis Armstrong. I could play like Harry James for a few moments. And, you know, Miles Davis, I had a couple of his licks down. So, But that was all uh, who wanted to hear that. That was what they were doing. So I was on pursuit of trying to find my own voice. Well, there's so much more to talk about with music legend Herb Alpert, and we'll do that for the next half hour after the top stories from the Northwestern Medicine Newsroom. Dave Plyer, 720 WGN. We're talking to music legend Herb Alpert. His latest album is Sunny Side of the Street. Herb, you and your business partner, Jerry Moss, your friend, guys would attend bullfights in the early 60s, and it was mariachi bands that really provided some unexpected inspiration from you, and it was the crowds that really reacted in a very special way to all that. There was a group of musicians uh, that played, uh, that introduced the different events at a bullfight. So, they, you know, they would come up and they'd play, you know, that type of feeling. I was inspired by that, and I tried to, you know, reflect on that in a song that was written by a friend of mine. The song was originally called The Twinkle Star, which eventually became The Lonely Bull. The Lonely Bull, yeah. But I was trying to uh, you know, get, get a feeling of that, um, those moments, uh, on record. And luckily enough, something really beautiful happened because I got a... After The Lonely Bull was released and it became a big hit, uh, I got a letter from a lady in, in Germany who said, uh, Dear Mr. Oppert, Thank you for sending me on this vicarious trip to Tijuana. <laughs> you know, when I read it, I, ch- I kind of chuckled and I thought about it. I said, man, that, rec- that music was so visual for her, it transported yeah. her. Yeah. And I said, that's the type of music I, I'm, I'm pursuing. That's, that's what I like to make, music that, makes, that takes you someplace. You know, opposed to elevator music, which is okay, you know, it's there, but sure. it's not, you, don't, you don't leave the elevator whistling anything. <laughs> No, no, you don't. <laughs> you don't. But with that said, you know, you created this this wonderful sound. You, you also created Carnival Records, which became very quickly the famed A&M Records. Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass was formed, but really, and I don't know if a lot of people know this, but Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass, it was really all you in the beginning. That was all your sound. That was that was everything. You played it. You played all parts of that. Well, I played all the trumpet parts on all the Tijuana Brass records, but there was no Tijuana Brass until after right. I recorded the Whipped Cream and Other Delights album. Then I got a group together to travel, and uh, I was a little reluctant to do that because, uh, you know, I was thinking, oh, boy, here we go. Now i got to go into another kind of phase in my career, and I'm not sure I wanted to do that, but it was like the right thing to do at the right time. So got a group together, and it was fortuitous because... Uh, we released, my partner Jerry Moss was really excited about this song I did called uh, Third Man Theme mm-hmm. from the movie. Mm-hmm. That was the A side. On the B side was A Taste of Honey. Yeah. And uh, when, after I got the group together, we played our first concert in um, Seattle, Washington. 
every time I played Taste of Honey, the crowd went crazy for it. So um, I called my partner, Jerry. I said, Jerry, we're on the wrong side. You know, turn it over. It's Taste of Honey. <laughs> he said, no, nah, you can't dance to it. It's too, you know, it's, it, it slows up and it stops in the middle twice. And it's not good for radio. I said, I, I don't know what uh, radio wants, but I'm telling you, I got a focus group up here, and uh, I think we should turn it over, which we finally did, and uh, it became a big hit, and that was the the door opener for the Tijuana Brass, because after that, you know, we were doing, uh, you know, the Ed Sullivan Show, and yeah. Dean Martin, and yeah. all the, uh, Andy Williams. And your own specials as well, but this was 65, you know, uh, you know, and by the way, so that means the album turns 50 this year. I was, I was mentioning to you before we got... Uh, started that, you know, I was born in 67, and this album was part of my father's record collection that he played and was stored in a Zenith console. And at a very young age, you know, the cover obviously was very intriguing to me <laughs> because I was a young well, kid. Well, let me tell you something about that cover. <laughs> and this actually happened. I know this sounds like I'm making this one up. Okay. But, uh, yeah, people come up to me all the time and tell me about that, that cover. And, it's, you know, it's an iconic cover and something really lovely about that, uh, you know, wonderful-looking uh, lady that's on the cover. Mm-hmm. This guy comes up to me, and this was, I don't remember exactly what year. He says, man, you know that cover you, that, uh, you know, I said, you mean the whipped cream and other delights? He says, yeah, I just love that cover, man. It was so special for me. I said, well, thank you very much. How, uh, what about the music? He says, well, I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you, man, that happened one time. <laughs> it's like, That's fantastic. really, you know, the cover was more important than, than the music inside. Well, I mean, it was, it, it's, icon- you know, it's it's the green background, it's the woman in the chiffon, and I, and, I, and I know it was supposed to be whipped cream, I think it was shaving cream, probably, that they used at the time, and it was the Well, water- you know, there was whipped cream on top of her head, and okay. there was whipped cream on her hands. Okay. Other than that, it was shaving cream, and everybody was intrigued, oh, uh, yeah. all the male we're intrigued, like, mm, what's under there? You, you betcha, know? you betcha. But it got it got a lot of attention. I mean, it was, you mentioned Taste of Honey, Whipped Cream, Lollipop and Roses. You know, the latter two were eventually featured, you know, on The Dating Game, which, I, which I'm very familiar with. But this introduced me to, you know, jazz and contemporary jazz and easy listening. And it sold 6 million copies, spent 141 weeks on the Billboard Top 40 Albums chart. I mean, that's that's pretty iconic right there. Well, I was looking back at the roster you had for A&M Records for nearly four decades. Quincy Jones, Burt Backrack, The Carpenters, Liza Minnelli, Cat Stevens, Joe Cocker, Carol King, Supertramp, The Sex Pistols, Janet Jackson, The Police Sting, The Go-Go, Sheryl Crow. This list is endless. I mean, this is yeah, it's amazing. Pretty amazing. We have some great jazz artists, Dan Getz and Paul Desmond. Mm-hmm. Chet Baker did an album for us. No, it's, it was a great, great uh, role, and... Uh, you know, I had an experience prior to A&M. I was recording for a major record company for about a year and a half, and I didn't like the way I was being treated. You know, I didn't like the, the way the studio felt. Uh, it was very cold in there. Uh, not the, necessarily the temperature, but just visually was cold. It was mm. white on white on white on white on white. You know, and I just, there was uh, like lessons there for me that I took to uh, heart when I had my chance to have my own record company. So, I mean, I had an experience in, in the control room listening to a playback of one of my songs, and I wanted to hear a little more bass, so I went over to the console and I lifted the uh, the bass track up, and um, the engineer slapped my hand and said, don't ever touch this again, this is a union board, and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, man, shouldn't you be treating the artist uh, that's uh, everything's supposed to resolve around, revolve around the artist as a rec- in the record company? So anyways, I took all that and, and you know, transferred that to uh, the feeling at A&M, and that's what we had there. We had 
you know, you walked into our recording studios and it was like a living room. It was like the colors were right, the, the acoustics were right, the... You know, we we brought all those elements in that make make an artist feel really comfortable. Well, as an artist yourself too, you know, having your own record label, you know, you had a knack of finding some really unique talent, but you gave them time to find their audience. This wasn't the quick one hit wonder type of record label that you had. I mean, you really let these artists shine and kind of find their way a little bit. Yeah, definitely. I, that's a good part of it. It's a good uh, thing you brought out because I, I feel like an artist needs. You know, the audience kind of gives them the feeling of where they where they should be going because the response that they get when they perform. There's more with music legend Herb Albert right after this on 720 WGN. That song is from Herb's latest album, The Sunny Side of the Street. Day Player 720 WGN. We're talking to music legend Herb Albert. You know, while running AM back in the early 60s, you were out recruiting artists from all the other labels. And you signed on Waylon Jennings, who at that time personified the outlaw country movement of the 60s and the 70s. I produced Waylon for about a year or so. I used to go to Phoenix and record him in, in uh, a little studio there. And I did a, a record called uh, Four Strong Winds with him that uh, Chet Atkins happened to hear. Chet was working, uh, you know, I guess he was with RCA or one of the big companies in Nashville and, and made an overture to, to Waylon that when he got out of his contract, which he shouldn't have said, uh, <laughs> that he'd... Um, you know, like to talk to him. Anyways, Waylon told me about that and my partner, Jerry Moss, and we thought in Waylon's best interest, we were going to let him out of this contract so he could go with uh, Chet Atkins. Because I, I wanted to take Waylon a little bit more pop, and he wanted to go a little bit more country. So we thought it'd be best for him to go with Chet Atkins. And so I remember the day that Jerry and I signed the contract to release uh, Waylon from his obligation. I think he had uh, another two years with us. Mm-hmm. And we signed that release. Jerry signed that release. And I looked at Jerry and said, man, this guy's this guy going to be a big artist. And Jerry said, I know. And I said, man, if we could be that honest with our artists and be, have that type of integrity, we were going to be really successful. And that's, I think, that's uh, a, you know, what that, happened. That was the secret to your success, absolutely. And I was going to say, you know, too, you know, with developing all these artists, you know, back in the day, this was the difference also between A&M Records and other record companies. There wasn't a clutter of dozens of executives, too many chefs in the kitchen. It was really just you and Jerry, for the most part you know, making these decisions. And that's why you were able to get things to market so quickly and and really, again, find some unique talent. Oh, yeah. No, we didn't have in Hall. When we'd we'd, uh, hear an artist that we liked, we'd just sign them. You know, that was it. Now, the other companies, you know, you had 10 people raising their hand, five likes, five didn't, you know. Yeah. It was just cumbersome. But, you know, we just, we were going on feel, and that's all, uh, I think, um, you know, until... It came time to sell the company. You know, we started with the two of us in my garage. Yeah. And then there were three, five, ten, twelve, hundred, and then five hundred. And I said, oh, man, this is way beyond me. You found the Carpenters. I mean, you know, this was, you know, a young, uh, impressionable brother and sister that you, you know, took to the top of the charts. I mean, and you had a great relationship with them, I know, as well. I loved Karen. You know, I heard a tape that they uh, were passing around the various record companies, and I think we were the only ones that really uh, showed any interest. And I, I, I not, only, not only showed interest, I mean, I, there was something about her voice that was magical for me. And, and that's not the type of music that I normally listen to, but, you know, I learned a great lesson from the great Sam Cooke in 1957, where he would 
audition artist with his back turned and his eyes closed and all that, and I was listening to this tape that was presented to me, not the Carpenter's uh, tape, and I closed my eyes listening on my in my uh, stu- uh, office at A&M, and the speakers were about 10 feet in front of me, and I'm sitting on the couch, and man, when I heard, when her voice came on, it felt like she was like sitting right next to me. It was had one of those mm-hmm. presents, you know, that... Uh, got me and I so you know I wanted to meet them and I after spending some time with them and realizing this is the music that is oozing out of them this is the music that they love to make uh it was not only Karen who had this magical voice you know at, but tell you the truth at the time she thought you know her strength was a drummer she was playing drums. really <laughs> yeah I know if you asked her you know what can you really do well she says well I'm a drummer and I can kind of sing you know <laughs> that type of thing but anyway, it was Richard who uh, you know knew a great song he was you know arranged the songs and he he was uh, a integral part of the success of the Carpenters. Now I was going to say, you know, too, you know, with developing all these artists, you know, back in the day, this was the difference also between A&M Records and other record companies. There wasn't a clutter of dozens of executives, too many chefs in the kitchen. It was really just you and Jerry for the most part, you know, making these decisions. And that's why you were able to get things to market so quickly and and really again, find some unique talent. Oh yeah, no, we didn't have in hall when we when we uh, hear an artist that we liked, we just you sign them. You know that was it. Now the other companies, you know, you had ten people raising their hand, five likes, five didn't. You know, yeah, it was just cumbersome. But you know, we just we were going on feel, and that's all. Uh, I think um, you know until it came time to sell the company. You know, we started with the two of us in my garage. Yeah. And then there were three, five, ten, twelve, hundred, and then five hundred. And I said, "Oh man, this is way beyond me." You know, I, I lost, I lost, you know, that contact with everybody. So it was, uh, it was time to move on. Herb, your music, your art, your philanthropy have all touched us in some way. I'm thrilled you joined us once again tonight. Ah, my pleasure. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thank you so much, Dave. <laughs> 